Welcome uh, to another interview uh, of EFSAS, this time with Dr. Hans Jakob Schindler. Uh, he is the senior director at the Counter Extremist Project, which is a, a transatlantic uh, think tank with offices in New York, London, Berlin. And uh, Dr. Schindler has always also been, um, you have been, as far as I know, you have been the coordinator of the um, ISIL, Al-Qaeda and Taliban sanctions monitoring team of the UN Security Council. And you have an experience of, uh, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I guess somewhere 20, 25 years of dealing with issues concerning extremism. Um, for the viewers, it's of course not your, your, your last uh, stint with the UN Security Council was of course mainly related to ISIL, uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban, but you also um, have an expertise on far-right extremism and other extremist uh, groups which are not directly or necessarily related to uh, Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, so Dr. Schindler, uh, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, as we discussed before we, we, we started, uh, the, I, I read your CV and I, I, I don't think I have enough time to go in everything you've done, but you have been a regular commentator on various news channels, various newspapers. Uh, you've also advised uh, various governments. And of course, we are mostly interested in, um, you, you've also been part of the, of the federal, of the Ger Germany's governmental team investigating Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia. Well, probably those are the things we are interested in. As you know, we, we focus mostly on South Asia. But before we get there, um, just a little bit about yourself, like we discussed, your your choice of career, how you ended up in this field and what you did before and how your stint was with the UN and what you're doing now. Fantastic. Well, thank you. You actually summarized this already quite well. So, you know, the, my interest in terrorism really um, originated with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And that's what I wrote my PhD thesis on uh, at San Andreas University. I, I studied quite in a few countries. So, uh, you know, apart from Germany, I went to Georgetown. Um, for a time, and then St. Andrews, I had a stint at Tel Aviv University in Israel, and then was focusing on the issue of terrorism in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, looking at both sides terror groups uh, in my PhD, actually. Um, following my academic career, and I, I was a managing editor of a scientific journal for, for about two years before, I then joined the German government, again, um, particularly recruited for the issue of terrorism, because this was early in 2001, so January 2001, and there wasn't really anyone who were, was able to study terrorism in Germany because that simply wasn't a subject at universities, but it was at St. Andrews University, which was at the time the only university in um, Europe that offered a postgraduate degree on international terrorism. So I got recruited and then put on the um, Al-Qaeda file, uh, which included uh, the regions that you mentioned. Um, prior to the 9-11 attack. So I had just have enough time to map, up all the, map out all the camps in Afghanistan and the relationships there um, when the attack happened, which of course then um, my little work group grew into an entire department, 
within a year. Um, I wasn't a department head uh, because, you know, that's how governments work. Uh, uh, hierarchies are, are hard to climb. Uh, I did this until 2005, and then I was posted in Iran for six years at the embassy as the special advisor to the uh, ambassador and also the liaison to the Iranian security forces, which was a, a very unique experience, especially since my time there. Uh, the Green Movement happened in, in Iran, which was one of the most significant things that happened in Iran the last 40 years, in my opinion. And then left the German government to join uh, private industry as an advisor on sanctions and terrorism and security in London, worked with uh, a few quite big European corporations, um, and then was uh, called back uh, in, indirectly by the German government because there was a position open at the ISIL al-Qaeda Taliban monitoring team in the Security Council. Uh, for the first time, I was the first German and then uh, ever in any of the teams, and, um, and then the first coordinator that Germany had in the Security Council in its existence, and so far the only one we ever had. Um, the team really is the advisor to the members of the Security Council on not only the threat of ISIL, Al-Qaeda, and Taliban and the development of these organizations globally, so it's not focused just on Afghanistan, this is a global mandate. However, because there's a separate, separate sanctions regime that this team also advises the 1988 sanctions regimes on the Taliban, um, working with Afghan government in Afghanistan um, was one of the major, major work streams and is until now, um, although I'm not sure how but the access um, of, the, of the monitoring team. So, you know, at least three, four times a year, uh, we were in Afghanistan for two, three weeks, uh, traveling all throughout the country, uh, including really uh, um, remote areas like Uruzgan, Khost, uh, because the UN has a quite a big infrastructure there. However, since this is an elected position, you get five years to do this. So that ended then automatically in 2008 with the possibility, no possibility to, to uh, extend that mandate, a personal extend that mandate. So you have to leave after the five years. That's part of the contract. In order to make sure that there is always fresh blood, other countries uh, being involved. I mean, it's, a, uh, it's the biggest advisor team, 10 experts from 10 countries. But since this is a global counterterrorism sanctions regime with enormous impacts around the globe, uh, they want to make sure that there's a certain turnover of personnel, but also of countries that have uh, uh, members of the team, because they work directly with the members of the Security Council, not just on the threat, but also on the design of global counterterrorism sanctions. So anything from um, passenger data transfers at airlines to regulations on container transports to um, arts and antiquities when, when ISIL started to uh, loot those in Iraq and Syria in, in a large extent. You design this, the Security Council then um, takes a decision on this, puts it in a resolution in some cases, and then it becomes legally in, uh, enforceable all over the world. So it's a quite an influential work that you're doing more in the background. So the team is not actually getting the recognition. Uh, it should, in my, in my opinion, publicly. Um, so after 2018, uh, the mandate ended, I joined this, my, uh, you see the logo in the background, my organization where I'm working right now primarily. I'm also on the board of a couple of other organizations and companies um, that looks at violent uh, extremism. So not extremism in a broad sense, but extremism that obviously, that is directly connected to violence. Uh, and that on a broad spectrum, from all the way from right-wing extremism, what you mentioned, a little bit left-wing extremism, and to Islamist extremism and terrorism, connected to violence. 
Um, we, there are three work streams that we primarily work on. One is, and that was the raison d'etre, why this organization was founded in 2014, is to make life hard for extremists and terrorists online, and not just as many do by analyzing what they're doing, but also helping governments, and my organization very much uh, was involved in discussions with the German government when they passed uh, the, the relevant laws, also with the EU counterterrorism coordinator and the EU commission, when they now uh, pass regulations like the Digital Services Act um, of the EU, that um, means regulatory efforts to make sure that the internet industry is treated similar to other industries who have a regulatory defined responsibility for the harm that their products may do, which is something that in 2014, no one was doing. So I was quite cutting edge. Um, the second work stream is counterterrorism financing. And that's the, the work stream that I primarily lead on pretty much everything that the organization does. Again, not defined by uh, extremism kinds or whatever uh, financial methods are used. It also allows us to look at methods that one extremist phenomenon copies from the other one. Um, and here we, of course, also have developed a online expertise, i.e. the misuse of cryptocurrencies and online services for the financing of terrorism, as well as the financing of right-wing extremism. And the last one is very operational. So we work with a couple of prisons on a huge Department of Homeland Security grant, building out in actual operational terms, um, pilot programs for the reintegration of released terrorist offenders, something that the U.S., in greater numbers didn't have to deal with in the last 20 years because you were either ending up with a thousand years in prison so you would never get out or um, you would uh, end up on an island in the Caribbean um, where reintegration is also not the primary topic there but uh, with the Islamic State um, there is now a prison population of several hundred that got very much shorter sentences because even in America you don't get a thousand years prison sentence if you attempt to travel to Iceland, or if you send them a hundred bucks, you get, of course, a long sentence, but that ends. And that time is now coming for quite a few of them. And so there needs to be an integration program. In parallel, we work operational with the UK government with a channel and prevent program, also dealing with uh, training local authorities. For the viewers who don't know what channel and prevent is, this is a prevention program by the UK government that in, very much involves also local authorities so your city administration, um, that should help um, prevent and if not possible, then channel people towards uh, better advice and uh, possibly even police action if they are radicalizing in a way that they may become violent. So we, we're helping a range of local authorities, CP does, uh, a range of local authorities to train up on new developments of Islamist terrorism, right-wing extremism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite a broad remit, but of course, um, given my history um, and that I never really worked, uh, stopped working on Afghanistan, um, Afghanistan, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, the Al-Qaeda affiliates there remain, of course, one of the main central topics of what CEP is working on. And we've been looking at that situation continuously since the organization was founded and, of course, now very intensively since I joined. So that's me in a nutshell. No, thank you. And, and, and that's what I wanted to uh talk about is that of course your organization and you have done so much um but we are of course mostly interested not only because of the fact what is happening in afghanistan but also because of our own focus and as i said to you 
it's we try to have these candid talks where I also try to make, uh, you know, I'm not a journalist, but I try to have candid questions. And one of them, after listening to you and after seeing what you have done, is one question I would like to ask you is, did the sanction committee of the United Nations Security Council listen to your advices? Because as far as I follow the news, the Taliban is back in power. Yeah, but see, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what sanctions are and what their function is, right? So sanctions are a methodology. Uh, so there are three basic approaches, right? Military, look to Ukraine. That's one way you can try to solve it. Diplomacy and sanctions. That's the three instruments that you in broad terms have, none of which work necessarily in uh, isolation very well. So if you don't have a strategy attached to it, um, then the sanctions are there and it's a political statement, but it will not have a changing effect. So there needs to be a political strategy and sanctions are and have always been part of a political strategy. So the situation um, was not uh, that we find ourselves in, um, which is, and I'm sure we get to this in greater detail, not without its challenges uh, at the current time, um, is not caused by a failure of the sanctions regime. Actually, the sanctions regime is, at least the Security Council one, is extremely well balanced uh, and focused because the Taliban did everyone the favor or disfavor, depending on how you look at it, of appointing the same individuals to the same positions that they had in 2001. And therefore, um, the 1988 sanctions list, because this is a targeted regime, so it doesn't target the Taliban in general, it targets 135 individual Taliban leaders, mm -hmm. plus five entities, four of which are Havaladas, and one entity, the Haqqani Network. So, you know, we're going to talk about the Haqqanis, I'm sure, and their role in the current uh, system in Afghanistan. But it's actually ideally targeted for this current government and is, to a certain extent, also a leverage. Because while ISA, the Islamic State, and... Um, Al-Qaeda never really publicly cared much about Security Council sanctions from the outset, i.e. Uh, 1999 when the regime was founded, um, then in 2000 when it was an Al-Qaeda and Taliban combined regime because the Security Council wanted Osama bin Laden to be extradited to the United States because of the attacks in East Africa, in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, and the Taliban was the government, so they got sanctioned and Al-Qaeda got sanctioned on top of them. And then in 2011, that was split off. And from the time it was split off as a separate Taliban sanctions regime, consistently, the Taliban had been asking to be removed from the Security Council sanctions because they know that this is a massive political delegitimization tool that the international community has as leverage over them. And so far, no one is talking about relinquishing that regime. There were some adjustments made to in, ensure humanitarian aid delivery in December last year with resolution 2615-2021, um, but the regime consists. So that means we still have leverage. Now, the $200 million question, of course, is how are you using and employing that leverage? So again, it's an instrument. It, the mere existence is not going to make the Taliban do X, Y, or Z. It's depending on what we use this leverage for. But when, when you talk about these sanctions on Taliban members, per se, and not the organization yeah. at large. I think the organization is listed as a terrorist organization under the UN Security Council Resolution 1257. Yeah. 
Um, no, 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 it's not. It's not. Um, it never was on the list. Um, so there is. So there are designated the way that security council sanctions work is you have a resolution. Yeah, right? so there, and there are resolution has words. members. <laughs> And yeah, then you so, have a sanctions list. Yes, exactly. And under sanctions are those who are on the list, regardless of what it says in the resolution, mm -hmm. right? So the Taliban, however, as an organization, are sanctioned as a terror organization by the US government. Exactly. They sanctioned the Taliban as a, as a movement as such. The uh, uh, Security Council never done that. The UN Security Council sanctions individuals. It sanctions groups like the Haqqani Network yeah. is a group, Al-Qaeda is a group, Lashkai Taiba is a group. So you can also sanction a group. However, that is where you put, because see, the problem is, especially on the, the Islamist terrorist side, um, what is in and what is out. So uh, designating groups really keeps a demarcation around what the Security Council um, defines as belonging to mm -hmm. ISIL and Al-Qaeda, right? So, for example, the Tariq Taliban Pakistan are sanctioned as an Al-Qaeda affiliate, and therefore the extension of what belongs to Al-Qaeda by the Security Council also extends to the Tariq Taliban Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So that's why primarily as a political sig signal, but also to demarcate where the borderlines are, right, of what the Security Council considers global international terrorism, which for the Security Council on the sanction side means uh, ISIL and Al-Qaeda so far uh, only, yeah, mm -hmm. to define where the borderlines are and which groups are not considered to be part of this and which groups are considered to be part of this. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I, as far as I know, the UN Security Council resolution of 1267 is a bit ambiguous in how it sanctions groups. The, the, the Taliban is not per se mentioned, but there are certainly sanctions on the Taliban, not part of the resolution. Uh, so there, there is probably where the misunderstanding is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had that question after, after August quite a lot of time, yeah, because it says prevent money to the Taliban. Think, exactly. So right? there, there, I, I know the TTP is on the list. Al-Qaeda is on the list. ISIS yeah. is on the list. Taliban per se is not on the list. Exactly. Yeah, and and they, the counter-argument against that, because it's in the resolution, you know, yes. there are sanctions. The counter-argument is there is the ability to sanction groups. Exactly. And so, over the last 23 yeah. years, since 1999, the Security Council never decided to put the Taliban movement as an entity on either one of the lists. No. Right? Only some so, sanctions do apply in practice to the Taliban in terms of financing, for example. Uh, to a certain extent, um, I mean, primarily to the Taliban that are on the list, right? Yeah. But also if the Taliban give money to the Tariq Taliban Pakistan, of course, they conducting a sanctions violation because the Tariq Taliban Pakistan is sanctioned, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if you give money to the Taliban movement and there is a clear risk or a record that the Taliban would hand this over, and we're gonna, I'm sure, discuss the Taliban-Al-Qaeda relationship, would hand some of the assets over to Al-Qaeda, then you can't give that money to no, the Taliban. Exactly. Yeah? Because no. then you would indirectly, because the, the formulation in the Security Council resolution is always directly, I give to yeah. Al-Qaeda, or indirectly, yeah. I give to someone knowing that he's giving it to Al-Qaeda. Exactly, and Taliban, let's not forget, was host to Al-Qaeda for a few years. Ah, they still are. 
<laughs> and they are very clear about that. And so is Zawahiri in his latest video in February. So while we talk about these individuals being listed, of course, on sanctions list, uh, and the Taliban indirectly in some way being sanctioned, how do you reconcile with the fact that the Taliban just recently flew in a private jet to Oslo for peace talks? Yeah, I mean, there is actually a procedure within the sanctions regime um, mm-hmm. that can be used. So in difference to the Al-Qaeda sanctions regime, which has only a few basic exemptions that you can make, you have to apply as the government who wants to do this, if the individuals are under your control and your jurisdiction, that is basic expenses, of course, because the asset freeze is global in total. That means you can't even give electricity or food to the sanctioned individual. So basic expenses for everyone. Yeah? Government needs to apply, but this is like approved uh, in a science procedure of 72 hours, so essentially approved. And then extraordinary expenses if the individual needs to travel in the court case or if the medical facilities in the country where they are are not sufficient to save his or her life, then of course, you can cross the border and, and get medical treatment there. The 1988, however, uh, a sanctions regime has an exemption that um, allows for the exemption of the travel ban of these individuals, plus um, a certain limited number of assets, i.e. money, that you can give to the individuals for the travel if the travel is in pursuit of peace, security, and stability in Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. So that is a mechanism that was deliberately put into the sanctions regime early on to ensure um, that the reason to separate this from Al-Qaeda, of course, was to make sure that you can diplomatically, officially engage the Taliban. You would never diplomatically, officially engage a group that is on the same global counterterrorism sanctions list, right? Um, the, um, um, uh, to, to question, be able to do that, right? And that's why the exemption is in there and that's why it's used sometimes. My, my question here arises is that by, by, this, by, by including this mechanism, you of course already, you foresee a possibility that at some point of time, you might have to diplomatically engage in the pursuit of peace. Yeah. Why wasn't... But this wasn't put in now. This was put in when this regime exactly. was put off in 2011 and it was yeah. used... You know, look at the Doha office, look at the negotiations and all of that. But but if if you look at that, why wasn't such a mechanism, for example, taught about other groups which are equally violent, like Al-Qaeda? Why hasn't that mechanism ever been taught about that you could at some point? I'm not I'm not I'm not uh, advocating for that. I'm just. Academically asking you the I question. I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> no, look, the difference why not, here is... Why not, why not diplomatically engage with Al-Qaeda then? Yeah. So uh, the, the difference here, I think, in, in general terms, mm-hmm. is that with the Taliban movement, right, and as I said, the symbiotic uh, relationship with Al-Qaeda and hosting and sheltering them is a problem. Um, but the Taliban movement as a Taliban movement has always been very clear and that they at least accept the basic rules of international... Uh, of the international system, i.e. they want to be the government of Afghanistan. How they govern is a different way. Mm -hmm. Who their friends are that they're sheltering is a different way. But once you come to the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, the whole point of them is to break the international system, Mm -hmm. right? The ideology is to, and that's the big difference, either attack only or primarily the far enemy, Al-Qaeda, or anyone, Islamic State, in order to really destroy ultimately the entire international system, put a new Islamic system, a caliphate in place, both, by the way, Al-Qaeda too, is often forgotten, things about 
an end state in which a caliphate, a global caliphate is erected. Uh, ISIL just basically jumped the gun and implement, tried to implement that slightly earlier than Al-Qaeda, who says it's a generational problem, right? So there is no diplomatic engagement that makes sense with a group who wants to go away with diplomacy, mm-hmm. right? So their, ident- uh, 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 their idea is not an international system of nation states under the United Nations. Their idea is a completely different system. And w- what engagement to watch, to what purpose, uh, would require such an exemption? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... And, and, uh, now and by the way, this is also important to mention so that it doesn't come across, because this is a very common mistake. Talking to sanctioned individuals and entities is not forbidden by the sanctions. Sanctions do not mean mean you cannot engage with the uh, other entity. You just can't give them any assets, Mm -hmm. any weapons, uh, um, uh, allow them across your borders. Mm -hmm. That's where the restrictions are. But negotiating prisoner releases, humanitarian access, as long as you don't pay for it, is allowed under the Security Council resolutions. as long as you don't, as I said, as long as no assets change hands. Now that we come to that point, and there is a question here which I wanted to come a bit later to, but now that you have mentioned that, that assets, we, you know, um, it's frequent, it's, it's argued by some um, governments uh, that there are states in particular, in this case in the region, the state of Pakistan, which has been a supporter of the Taliban. Um, By that logic, maybe also a supporter of other terrorist organizations. Um, So how do you see this connection and how do you see that, or is that more politics that then we don't go that far to designate countries as sponsors of terrorism because we need them politically? Uh, I mean, look, sanctions violations have led to a sanctioning of an entire country um, um, in one case in the Security Council. Um, However, that was largely due to the brazen approach that that country has done to the sanctions. This this regards the Somalia sanctions regime. As that sanctions regime was established, Eritrea actually wrote a letter to the Security Council uh, stating in no uncertain terms that has no intention of ever implementing this sanctions regime. Um, And then that led to Eritrea being added until a couple of years ago. And it was then called the Somali-Eritrea sanctions regime. Now, Pakistan never um, said it would absolutely refuse to implement any Security Council sanctions. In fact, they've always stated that they would. And they had transposed all Security Council sanctions decisions of individuals and entities on both the 1267 and 1988 list into their registry, right? So on the sanctions practice, and limitation you know, side, they never actually outright said. You that know, you saw the practice is different. Uh, there, there are generals. No, no, in- I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you why mm-hmm. yeah, um, Eritrea and Pakistan in their behavior were different. That okay. is apart from the fact that, of course, Pakistan always balances, balanced and continues to balance its interests with the United States and the West with its regional interests in Afghanistan. And that means they always had a foot firmly on both sides of the fence. And given the particular day 
or time of the day, you know, one or the other side of the fence um, was, uh, you know, more important to them uh, due to tactical reasons. Obviously, it is clear that Pakistan has very strategic interests in what's going on in Afghanistan. They see this, and they said so, as a strategic depth of their country. They know that in their rivalry with India, they need this strategic depth. They have very made very clear that, you know, especially when you saw what statements officially came out from very high-ranking government members in August, mm-hmm. um, that they were, let's put this very diplomatically, not unhappy mm-hmm. about the Taliban replacing Ghani, uh, the Ghani government in, in Kabul. So it's very clear um, where they stood. Uh, interestingly, of course, there's now big cooperation on many levels between Pakistan and the Taliban regime in, uh, in Kabul. Um, but they've become a little bit more quiet about their love. Um, because obviously now that the Taliban, for the first time in their history, actually, um, are in control of all of Afghanistan, which they weren't even at the high point prior to 2001, they were not in control of large parts of northern Afghanistan. That's now the case. The relationship between Pakistan and the Taliban also is a little bit more complex because Pakistan's ability to move things in Afghanistan does require a certain managed chaos in the country. And really, truly, a worst-case scenario strategically, in my view, for Pakistan would be a stable, peaceful, and prosperous Afghanistan because how can you manipulate then on short notice if you are in a mortal situation, uh, let's say a large-scale war with your regional rival India, how could you then manipulate whatever you need to manipulate in the country? So, you know, this relationship is evolving as we speak. To be told. And how do, you, how do you place, like you mentioned, how do you place the Haqqani network in this? Yeah, the Haqqani network is not only one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful faction within the Taliban movement. It's important to understand the Taliban don't really exist. There are factions Mm. that call themselves Taliban. Each one has a slightly different ideological outlook, right? So you have Kandahari factions, you have West uh, Afghanistan Taliban factions, you have Northern Afghanistan Taliban, and in the East, you have the Kani network. That network is... Uh, interesting or crucial in a couple and different from the other networks in a couple of aspects. So number one, that network is Salafi Wahhabi oriented, which is quite unusual for the Taliban who usually Hanafi. So a more Mm -hmm. Afghan version of extremist Islam. Some say more moderate, well, moderate compared to, you know, other less moderate is, you know, it may not be moderate as far as a, European definition of moderate would go, but I mean, not Salafi uh, But the Haqqanis always were. That also meant that the Haqqani network always had options because they had very good relationships to the Gulf, very much different to the rest of the Taliban, whose primary relationship always was and continues to be with Pakistan. Haqqanis had a different option. Because of their ideological outlook, they also were and are the actual link between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. They're ideologically better matched. They've always been the going between. They're the ones first accepting Osama bin Laden, talked to Mullah Omar about it being a good idea to accept bin Laden in, in Afghanistan, uh, and, so, and so forth. 
And that continues till today. They are the go-in between. Because as much as the Taliban, um, in their stated policy, see themselves only concerned with what happens in Afghanistan, they, in a broader sense, and this is primarily also influenced by the Akhani network, see themselves as part of a wider global jihadi movement and the only actual link to that whole global movement is Al-Qaeda. That's why Usama bin Laden, Zawahiri, uh, until his death and Zawahiri since, have always sworn personal loyalty buyer to all of the Taliban leaders. So first Mullah Omar, when the Taliban finally admitted that he was actually dead for a few years, then uh, Mullah Mansur, and then Haibatullah. And not only did Osama bin Laden and Zawahiri do this, and then after the death of uh, Osama bin Laden and Zawahiri, also all of the large affiliate leader, or the leaders of large affiliates of Al-Qaeda around the globe, including Jinim in West Africa, yeah, the, the movement for the protection of Islam and Muslims, the Al-Qaeda coalition of various groups uh, uh, that are affiliated with Al-Qaeda in West Africa. That leader too, Yad Aghali, swore allegiance to Haibatullah. That means not only whatever is in, in Afghanistan, there are quite a few Al-Qaeda affiliates operating in Afghanistan, but also globally, the Al-Qaeda network, the leadership is personally loyal to the leader of the Taliban, which shows you how important that uh, relationship is. And that's why also there was never a clear statement or let alone action of the Taliban to officially separate and disavow separate themselves from and disavow Al-Qaeda. Right? They always used have the formulation of not letting Afghanistan be used for international terrorism, which means whatever you want to mean. Right? Mm -hmm. um, um, but never a statement to say, we disavow Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda should leave Afghanistan. This is nothing to do with us. They actually continue to shy away from that statement because that's their link to that it, bigger ideological movement. It, it, it's very interesting you say this, that the Haqqani network are, have had this relationship with the both countries uh, and also the link. Not necessarily the governments, but I mean, no. you know, influential donors in that. So and 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 they are basically the link between Taliban and Al Qaeda. Yes. Uh, there, there has been this famous quote from an American general saying that they are the veritable arm of the Pakistani intelligence agencies. That too. I mean, uh, look, that is true. The the close relationship between the ISI and the Taliban is true for pretty much all of the factions, right? But also, Pakistan seems to recognize the importance of the Haqqani network. I mean, very indicative when the ISI tried to negotiate a ceasefire with the Tarek Taliban Pakistan in December last year, yeah. they asked Zirat Shakani, the current Minister of Interior in Afghanistan, not a member of the TTP, to actually be the going between to get that ceasefire negotiated. And he succeeded, showing how much influence and access he has also to that group. And then suddenly you have this attack in Pakistan a week ago. Yes, I, I wanted to mention that when you said we wanted to talk <laughs> because, about spillovers. Yeah, because, because you know, in our it, first conversation, we talked theoretically about it and I said, this is going to not stay, stay theoretically very long. 
And exactly. here you go. So it, it, right? you know, as it, if as if they had heard us. <laughs> someone someone who would someone who would listen to this, a, a layman would say, okay, what you're telling me is that these people have a lot of influence in Afghanistan. They're the go-to link between Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The Pakistani ISI controls them. And then Pakistan. No, no, no. I mean, with the Akani network, I wouldn't say control. Them, but as an right? influence. So these are these are very good contacts. Has a working but, relationship. Yeah, but Hakanis can still do what the Hakanis want. And then you have an attack in Peshawar. Yeah. Which again, maybe it's too nuanced to go into who was attacked, but maybe very necessary for this particular conversation is that it was a Shia mosque which was attacked. Yeah, and, and ISIS, uh, the Islamic State claimed responsibility. So classic ISIL yeah. targeting, right? Also. If you look at the mosque attacks in uh, Afghanistan that the Islamic State is conducting in the last couple of months, they slowed down a little bit. Huh? Uh, obviously, someone told them that's not a good idea. And it's going to be quite interesting to explore why. Um, uh, is attacking Shiites. This is the strategy that the Islamic State has used in Iraq very successfully after when it was still called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And at the time even got the you know, rebuke from uh, uh, Savahiri at one point, right? This secretary intention, right? And so this is the same that plays out now in Pakistan and in uh, Afghanistan because this is also one of the Islamic State affiliates that is the closest to the center for a very simple reason. Most of the other Islamic State affiliates around the globe, whether it's West Africa or East Africa, Southeast Asia, is, are based on already existing group structures that switched allegiance from Al-Qaeda to the Islamic State or were you know, groups that weren't loyal to either one and then joined the Islamic State. Only two, other case, only two cases, one is Libya, and very early on in 2014, and pretty much at the same time in 2015, in Afghanistan, the ISIL center sent envoys from Iraq and Syria into these countries to build from the bottom up their uh, uh, affiliates there. They've never done it in any other place than those two places. Libya, because they thought the chaos in Libya would be a potential, would have the potential to have an alternative refuge for the Islamic State leadership in case, as they knew, things in Iraq and Syria in the long run would go bad. And Afghanistan, for two real reasons. A, really, a competition to the competing brand Al-Qaeda, who always been there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who, when ISIL was founded and announced itself as a caliphate, immediately as a response, founded Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent mm-hmm. to say, well, you may play around there in Iraq and Syria, building your little caliphate. We just established a new affiliate for the biggest Muslim population on the globe. So there you go, right? And so to counter this, uh, in, a, in a rivalry sense, and also because ideologically Khorasan is an important point in the ideology to be present there, to be part of the fight there. And Khorasan does include more than Afghanistan, and therefore it's no surprise they also conducted attacks in, in Pakistan. So this is where we are right now. And so we can talk about the complex relationship that the Taliban have with ISIL, and especially the Akani network has with the Islamic State in a minute, if you want to. So no, that's exactly where I was coming to, is that this has been claimed by the ISK. Uh, again, for a layman, 
they would say a terrorist, whether you call it ISK, Taliban, or Akhani Network, doesn't matter. But as, <laughs> it matters as, very much. As you point out, <laughs> it matters very, very much. Uh, like you said, there has also been a few or many Taliban members who have actually crossed over to yeah. the ISK. So, in essence, you, you paint it like this. There is this umbrella ideological organization, which is Al-Qaeda. And there beneath you have these so-called branches of these organizations, which is Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISK. And no, 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 no. That's the other way around. The Taliban are not part of Al-Qaeda. Okay, no. Right? So there's the Al-Qaeda network around the globe and uh, all the affiliates were personal Baya to Zawahiri. Exactly. holds the whole network together. In parallel, mm -hmm. Zawahiri and all of the uh, affiliate leaders swears personal Baya to Haibatullah. Exactly. Which means essentially they feel Haibatullah as somewhat their leader as well. Okay, so now you have on the ground this cocktail and we, we're going to go to always also the other spillovers because you yep. also have. Let me let me put Afghanistan, Pakistan, this whole region a bit together. So you're talking about the Taliban, Al Qaeda, ISK, Haqqani Network, Lashkar-e Taiba, Jaish-e Mohammed, and and these are much more related towards India and Pakistan. But just the the other four we are talking about: Al Qaeda, ISK, Haqqani Network, and Taliban. These are very much present in the Avpak region. How do you see the rivalries playing out in the coming years? How do, yeah. what, what will happen? So, I mean, look, if you look at the Security Council sanctions list and the groups that are mentioned there, and then look at Afghanistan, mm -hmm. currently Afghanistan is the country with the most Security Council sanctioned terrorist groups on its territory, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you can look through the reports of my, of my former team uh, for the full list, but I mean, it's a lot. It's the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, the Islamic Jihad group, the uh, Imam Bukhari Battalion. Um, it's the um, uh, Vigas, ETIM, East yeah. Turkmenistan Islamic Movement, or now Turkestan, Turkestan Islamic Party, TIP, right? Um, then you have the Pakistani originate, originated uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates, Lashkar-e Taiba, Jaish-e Mohammed, Tereke Taliban, Pakistan. You have Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, Al-Qaeda core, the people around uh, Zawahiri, all currently operating on Afghan soil, right? And so what you need to distinguish here is the relationship Taliban-Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Taliban-Islamic State in Afghanistan. So unequivocally, the Taliban-Al-Qaeda relationship remains symbiotic which means the Taliban are protecting and harboring these individuals. If you look at last August, just after the Taliban takeover, Samuel Haq, one of the significant Al-Qaeda members that still wanted globally, enters Afghanistan on video, gets Taliban, i.e. Haqqani fighters protection in Nangaha and settles in Afghanistan. I guarantee you he's not going to open a bakery when he's in Afghanistan. Um, but he apparently he felt secure enough that he would do this now on social media. A couple of months before, that would have meant potentially a drone strike the day after, right? So that's how secure he feels. It is also clear that the Taliban at the moment separating out foreigners 
that were part of these groups from Afghan fighters, because some of those Al-Qaeda fighters were actually integrated into the Taliban as instructors, trainers, blah, blah, blah. Um, attempts to make them part of the new Afghan army that they're building, but in a separate manner, separate housing, separate training, right? And give them, at least as far as I understand, when possible, Afghan citizenship. So, so actually, what, what, about the promise, what about the promise, again, you mentioned it, uh, that the Taliban assures that their territory will not be used for terrorism, uh, especially for Al-Qaeda. And now, I, they didn't say especially for Al-Qaeda. No, okay, that's the American, <laughs> that that's is the American the, one. That is the small difference here, right? Okay, so... so so, so, yes, so on, on what problem. hinges on, on what hinges the, the, the peace talks and the Doha agreement and everything then? Yeah, I mean, that formulation is whatever you want it to mean, <laughs> right? Um, so this can mean never, ever, ever is going to be a terror attack planned in Afghanistan again. This yeah, can also mean... Pakistan, which was probably planned in Afghanistan. This could also mean that someone arrives in Afghanistan gets training there. And, and there is something that I need to mention about the Peshawar attacks, which is important uh, mm -hmm. to that point here. So it's not as clear cut an example as you may think. Um, so you get your training there and then you go back to your home country. Six months later, there's a terror attack. Now, yeah. has the Afghan territory been used for this? Debatable, right? Um, so this is why this is such a deliberately broad and mm -hmm. unspecific statement um, you know, which I thought was a so mistake who, who, to accept. Who, who, right, do, you, so who do you see? The Peshawar attack, right? Yeah, yeah, the Peshawar attack, please. Yeah, so ISIS-K has different branches. Mm -hmm. One of them takes care of Central Asia and Pakistan. And that branch conducted that attack. So it is separate from the, ISIL, uh, from the is uh, Islamic State Khorasan province um, part that operates in Afghanistan. So it's not necessarily that that attack was planned in Afghanistan, although and could this, possible. And just speaking from your experience, could this yeah. have been planned and done without the knowledge of the Haqqani network, the Taliban? Peshawar, difficult. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say impossible, not impossible that they didn't know, but very unlikely. So there is a bit of a... Yeah, of course. I mean, do you, I, I, would you assume the Taliban being honest players here? <laughs> they wouldn't be in power if they had been honest players and would keep their commitments. I mean, the irony was uh, uh, with the withdrawal, the Western international community side kept all its commitments and the Taliban kept none of their commitments of the Doha agreement. You know... Uh, as 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 I told you in, in our in our preceding talk, I I personally I come from the region of Kashmir, yeah, and 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 terrorism there has also been a problem. I remember um, that in the nineties when Taliban was controlling uh, Afghanistan, uh, even some people from uh, from 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 Kashmir went to Afghanistan to get some training. I remember the Lashkar and the Jash having. Um, uh, having their camps over there, or at least part of their infrastructure. Um, and, and coming to today, how much do you see a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan having spillover effects 
to these organizations within Pakistan, which have a different enemy. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, again, I think Lashkar and Jash also have this larger thought of an Islamic caliphate, but their immediate their immediate threat or their immediate military aim is to uh, include the region of Kashmir into Pakistan and then the, re- the, in the Indian state and then Bangladesh and then make it an Islam. So how much spillover or infrastructure help or working together do you see here? Yeah, I mean, this is something that is potentially going to be problematic for Pakistan as well, right? So there, is been, there has been phases for uh, Lashka, Jaish, uh, um, and other Pakistani groups uh, uh, and their presence in Afghanistan. So until 2001, yes, they also had that, their camps there, and this was kind of their area where they would do their training before they go to Kashmir. Um, then after 2001, there was virtually no presence and only changed after Zarbasp, the actually quite good, well-executed operation of the Pakistani military to take further control of the tribal areas, which, as you know, constitutionally, the government really doesn't have a firm hand there, as it doesn't have with Balochistan. It's a special status there. So it's very tricky for the Pakistani government to actually take control there. So they, in several waves, um, tried to clean out um, the uh, tribal areas, built a fence on the border to uh, uh, Pakistan. And the effect of that was is that the fighters of Lashkai Taiba, Jaish Mohammad, uh, TTP actually went over to Afghanistan? I'm, I, I'm not privy to Pakistani detailed strategic, strategic planning, whether this was a side effect of what they were doing, whether it was the intention of what they were doing, but this is what happened. And so you had this presence on the ground in Afghanistan since Sarabas. The first Sarabas, there were several ones. Um, that presence was kept in check, of course, by the, to a certain extent, by the uh, uh, international community and the Kabul government until August last year. Now, no checks, right? Mm. And so obviously now you have a greater ability for them to train as the Western recuperation area, especially when it comes to groups whose sole aim is to attack Pakistan as, for example, the Direkta Taliban Pakistan, but also ISIS-K. But also you have more room to maneuver for Lashkar Taiba uh, and, and the Jaish Mohammed, whose primarily aim may be Kashmir uh, in the short run. Um, but ultimately, you know, how can you, as a Pakistani government, trust an organization that essentially uses terrorism? Uh, this is going to come home to haunt you at one point or the other. Which it already has. Yeah. So, so in a way, this is not particularly perfect news for Pakistan either. Mm-hmm. So, but do, do you see these organizations, so the TTP in Pakistan, uh, Lashkar and Jash towards India and Kashmir, do, do, do you see ramping up them ramping up their operations? Do you see oh, yeah, in a situation? Coming? Inevitably, they're in a situation they have never been in their history before since, no, that's not as a lie, 2001. Um, but even more comfortable than 2000, until 2001, because the Taliban now control all of the country. And they are there, they are sheltered there. Um, they are protected both from the international community as well as if Pakistan wanted to do anything, it's now 
needing to do this against the Taliban regime or in cooperation only with the Taliban regime. This has not been as comfortable for them in a long time. So obviously they will scale up their, their capabilities. They would be absolutely stupid not to do so. And they've never been proven particularly stupid in the past. So this is an inevitable development, which ultimately is not particularly positive for Pakistani. For Pakistani. Is the Haqqani network exactly there because of this re- region to control, like you said in the beginning, the Pakistanis are most benefited in their sense or in their strategic depth policy by having a managed... They initially thought so. I think they're, they're trying to understand that, you know, yeah, this was nice, but they're also quite a few points where things are not really working in their favor. But is, it right? therefore, is it therefore that the Haqqani network is in the government and Taliban to keep a check on this managed chaos, as you call it? Um, Pakistan has a lot of influence over the Taliban, but I mean, it's not running the Taliban as such. There would be no conceivable power structure of the Taliban in Afghanistan that would not include the Haqqani network. This has always been a central part of the entire movement. Um, There was no way around this. You see which ministers belong to the Haqqani network, right? Key ministries within the government are led directly by Haqqani leaders, all of them on Security Council sanctions, right? So uh, there was no way. If Pakistan wouldn't have wanted it, it would have still happened. And that it may be in the interest of Pakistan for it to be so has really no or very little to do with them being in those positions. There was just no other way to do this So for the Taliban. Okay, so, you know, playing devil's advocate here, if you see this spilling over to Lashkar Jesh, do you see another Mumbai attack happening? Look, I mean, the sad news for India is, is that the situation in Afghanistan is not lowering their threat level, right? Um, I would hope that the fallout from the Mumbai attack, which was quite significantly pop, pop, uh, uh, publicly and globally and a high diplomatic cost for Pakistan, was strong enough for Pakistan to make sure, more sure than they did last time, that something like this doesn't get repeated. Um, it's the same as Al-Qaeda unlikely being doing another 9-11. The cost benefit is just not there. And you've seen with the Islamic State never doing something that spectacular. A truck and uh, 100 deaths in Nice is just as bad. So you don't have to do these super high profile attacks. Um, one can only hope um, that that still holds, but guaranteeing, no. Because if something like that would happen, which with today's changed environment, you probably would have a war. Well, that is beyond my capability of really to predict because I just don't know mm-hmm. intimately enough the strategic planning of the Indian and Pakistani government, but large-scale terror attacks emanating from groups that are generally perceived of being loyal to your adversary are never conducive to a peaceful coexistence. And you see, you, you don't hope so, but you see terrorism in the region getting beyond Afghanistan and spreading its tentacles towards Pakistan, Iran, India. You see it going further. Do you also see it going towards, uh, you just mentioned them, towards the... Um, towards the Uyghurs and the Xinjiang province? 
So here, a little bit of a distinction. First of all, yes, this is not good news for counterterrorism regionally first, internationally later, mm-hmm. right? So at the moment, we still see also see the after effects of the COVID restrictions, reduced international travel, stricter controls, right? A less target-rich environment as far as soft targets are concerned. That had an impact on terrorist operations. It was just simply not as easy to do. Um, it was more, more difficult to do one, right? So once those go away, then we'll see where we stand. Clearly, the situation did not lead to de-escalation or de-radicalization of, of sympathizers. That's the second point. The third point is now we do have a sanctuary, at least for some of the terrorists, um, uh, within Afghanistan through the Taliban movement. So absolutely, including globally, the terror threat is not helped by the situation in Afghanistan right now. As far as the Vegas is concerned, it is really important to understand that the amount of Vegas currently fighting in Syria is incredibly higher than any number of Vegas fighting in Afghanistan right now. These were and have always been the smallest group in Afghanistan. They reduced further with the situation in Syria and Iraq developing in the, over the last couple of years. They do not play a significant role as far as the groups in Afghanistan is concerned. And that's why if I would be worried um, about the Vega terrorism, Syria is definitely higher on the priority list than the few people who are still left in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, but is that one thing? Uh, but to make this perfectly clear, hmm. the Vegas as a minority in China are not terrorists. And what happens to millions of Vegas in China is not justifiable with a few knife attacks that happened over the last decade in China. This never was and is very unlikely to be any security threat of unmanageable proportions for China. This could be handled very differently than it is right now. Yeah, but it's some people call it ethnic cleansing. Um, Some call call it worse, right? Yeah, but uh, the terrorism threat that the Uyghurs in Syria and Afghanistan, who are part of Al-Qaeda, there is no question about this, Mm -hmm. pose for Chinese domestic security cannot justify what's going on. That's not big enough to justify. No, so exactly. You're saying whatever is happening to the Uyghurs by the uh, Chinese state, Uh, definitely cannot be blamed on a terrorist threat from the Uyghurs. There is one, but I mean, you don't need to do these kind of measures to get rid of them. No. There are other ways to handle terrorist threats of this size and severity. Okay. And, and that one of the, there's probably a reason why the Chinese were cozying up a little bit to the Taliban. Maybe this is one. Mm, yeah, but to be totally honest, um, there are also other um, very serious uh, economic interests yes. that China has in Afghanistan, right? So as you and your listeners may be aware, uh, big Chinese mining corporations got a lot of ten- <coughs> tenders for uh, natural resources in Afghanistan uh, already under the, the actual last legitimate government in Afghanistan. Um, but they weren't able to actually operationalize these to any large extent. Also because of the security situation. So now having the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan, all of the country in control, of course, improved 
the security situation, unsurprisingly, because the Taliban was the ones causing the insecurity exclusively. Um, however, uh, and we can discuss this in more detail if you want to, apart from security, there are a couple of infrastructure and commercial challenges um, that will continue to prevent the uh, Chinese from actually operationalizing in a commercial beneficial, uh, beneficial sense those mining concessions. There is no railroad in Afghanistan. You can't transport easily large amounts of material out of Afghanistan. The, the road system, destroyed by the Taliban, by the way, um, isn't great, right? You have technical challenges. So if you want to mine copper in Mesainak, everyone has heard about this, right? There is not enough water. You need all of the water in the Bamiyan River to make this happen. But unless people in Bamiyan stop drinking water, that's not going to happen either. So, and then even if everything works, you still have to uh, transport the material to a harbor. And the only one is in uh, Jabahar, mm -hmm. uh, potentially, but that's also Iran sanctions coming to play. Or then Pakistani harbors, which means you have to go through the tribal area, which again adds a security premium because the tribal areas, as discussed, are not particularly stable either. So commercially, it will always be a a challenge for China to do this on a or anyone else. This is not just the Chinese, it's just they have the concessions at the moment for some of the stuff. Um, for anyone else to make this viable commercially to do so. But nevertheless, of course, one of the motivators to have a workable relationship, they haven't recognized the Taliban government, by the way, as a government, and I don't think they have any intention to do so in the future. Um, uh, um, for the Chinese to have a, a some kind of a workable relationship with the Taliban movement and regime. And please don't call, ever call it a government. A government gets elected. Uh, it's not uh, conquering a country. That's a regime. The, 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 the brutal Taliban regime, let's call it. You talked about commercial and economic interests. There's one uh, big commerce uh, in, in, in Afghanistan and in the region. And that's of course the drug economy of Afghanistan. And uh, of course, you have always had heroin, and now you have uh, met. Um, so, um, you know, you, you talked about the finances of terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, Akani Network. I believe the drug economy is one of the biggest sponsors of, uh, of, of, of these terrorist organizations. So why don't we... Well, it's also the oldest income stream of the Taliban, right? So my team in, in 2015 did a special report on... Taliban cooperation with criminal organizations. And we were able to prove based on what the Taliban had published themselves that there was never a second of the Taliban movement without money from drug productions. Their founding was pre-financed by three Nurzai drug networks in Afghanistan. They've never spent a second without being involved in the drug economy. Their state, the statements of Mullah Omar in 1999 and then again in 2000, right? had zero effect. In fact, what happened is when he said no more drugs in Afghanistan, right, was a, a political signal, nothing more. He knew where the money was coming from, yeah. right? Um, it led only to the collection of the harbor, harvest. First time, absolutely nothing happened. Second time, he said, you have to plow the poppy plants under because you can't uh, um, generate seeds from poppy plants, right? Um, you have to plow them under. And that led to the collection of the harvest, one of the harvests in 2000. 
And then a storage and every single kilogram of opium that was collected was then released on the world market once the heroin price had spiked again after it was clear that there was no heroin from Afghanistan for a while. So it actually made more money for the Taliban. Um, in the last 20 years, there's always been this discussion when I also discussed it with other uh, governments, this, this issue of Taliban drug financing. Yeah, but there's also drug cartels that are linked to the other side. Um, of the government. That was true for about 10%, right? Consistently, the Taliban controlled 90% uh, of the drug market in Afghanistan in the last 20 years, right? So they were always the main producer. And now they have the whole country under control. So there is no rival cooperation with the drug networks more. You now are, the, you know, the Taliban is in, in essence are the biggest drug cartel on the planet. Their production on heroin makes anything that happens with uh, South American drug cartels look like a walk in the park. They supply all of Eurasia with heroin. All of Eurasia. That is a bigger market than North America, right? A far bigger market than North America, up to China, right? So this is very, very important. The fact that they now go into synthetic drugs like methamphetamine is simply to, for them to understand the market, right? So methamphetamine has the really good advantage. You need chemicals, not fields. It means you need laboratory and raw chemicals to produce drugs in enormous quantities, which of course is much easier than having to plant poppies all over your country. So it is a very logical business extension of where you want to go. Um, it's less noticeable, right? Poppy fields, UNODC is very skilled at this. The Afghan poppy report every year is based on two decades of experience with satellite imagery. They can really tell you what is a poppy plant from satellite uh, uh, pictures, what is a poppy plant and was a bush in Afghanistan. That's why they are always quite so precise what the production is and where the production is, right? Um, labs, ah, much harder to detect, right? And so if you can develop a, def a separate business stream with labs, then this observation becomes far more tricky. The production capability is far harder to, uh, to um, ascertain um, and also um, uh, much harder to disrupt, right? So this is a logical thing what the Taliban are doing. And, and much, of this, much of this drug, of course, is meant for the West, you know, the Taliban uh, or, or, or for global markets. Yes, uh, all of it, by the way. No, yeah. just, there's yeah, some drug, of course, there's a drug problem in Afghanistan. Yeah, there's also not an undeniable one. But I mean, the production is not made for intended consumption. That was never no, the point. No, they, they of course, you know, th there is a big drug problem in Afghanistan. There is a big drug problem in Iran. There's also a big drug problem in the Afbak region, so in Pakistan. Yeah, uh, because most of it is tons, hundreds of tons of these things go through this country. Of course, some of this yes. will be diverted uh, domestically and consumed, right? I mean, when I was posted in Tehran, a shot of heroin at times was cheaper than a liter of milk. Mm. So the West or the global order in, in terms of Afghanistan deals particularly, which concerns our field with two main issues. One is terrorism. And the second is drugs. Yes. So, uh, and that, that was also one of my questions coming and to- And that will also on the money laundering side will get more tricky, right? Of course. Although in the last 20 years, the Taliban had quite sophisticated money laundering schemes. I mean, Etamat Water was a, uh, Etamat group of companies was a 
conglomerate of Afghan uh, and UAE-based companies uh, that allegedly um, sold, imported, and distributed foodstuffs and beverages and had a Navala attached to, but was just a massive money laundering operation of the Taliban, as it turned out, then when OFAC uh, finally sanctioned them. <laughs> now the Taliban have the entire Afghan economy yeah. to hide drug money. That is a far different and more complex ball game than we ever had before. Because I mean, try to get, for example, beneficial ownership information, i.e., who's the actual owner of a company in Afghanistan, try to get that information now, where we no longer really have any footprint in Afghanistan as the West, as the primary consumer of those drugs, as the primary interest of not receiving those drugs and stopping the drug money. It is much more complicated and complex now. And even if you get that document of a UBO statement, it might be just signed by the interior minister, which is Rajuddin Haqqani. So there may be more research required then. (laughs) Exactly. So what's the the West or, you know, the the, the allied troops along with America left Afghanistan, but they're still left with these problems, which is terrorism, drugs, money laundering. Of course, they're all interrelated. So what is now the role of the West? And, you know, what does the West or the global counterterrorism uh, you know, narrative or, or, or organizations or states, what's the role the West yeah. can have? <clears throat> I mean, first of all, there are a couple of things with which legally, ethically, morally will have to do, right? So humanitarian aid to Afghanistan is not a choice. It's an obligation as an international community, even you know, legally it's an obligation, but even more so after 20 years in this country, you cannot just not uh, um, do humanitarian support for the Afghan people um, and let them uh, you know, freeze to death or starve to death. Luckily, that hasn't happened, by the way. All the, the worst predictions, luckily, of the humanitarians initially, what would happen this summer, uh, this winter, have not materialized to the extent that they were fearing at the time that they would materialize. So that's number one. Number two, as made clear already by Resolution 2615 of December 2021 from the Security Council, um, there is a willingness and a necessity to go slightly beyond humanitarian uh, needs, meaning this basic human needs, in order to distribute food, you need roads. In order to work, you need electricity. Uh, in order to help, you need water. So these very basic human needs, there's also a willingness to support humanitarian organizations and not let sanctions stand in the way. So that's the stuff that we need to do. The stuff which but w- is one optional but not one advisable. Second. I just I just want to interrupt over there. I understand these are very necessary and these need yes. to be done. A side effect of this, isn't it a fate accompli then that the Taliban regime will continue in the position they are? Because you'll have to work with them. Well, there is a, first of all, there's a difference between basic human needs and, and uh, prosperity, right? Mm-hmm. So basic human needs is not equivalent to development aid. I know some of the humanitarian communities want to go there. Mm-hmm. I just don't see the political will or the necessity to help the Taliban to develop the Afghan economy uh, uh, into a prosperous, well-functioning, well-earning economy. Mm-hmm. Things have consequences, and that's one of them. So humanitarian aid, basic human needs, fine. 
development aid in the actual sense, I don't think that is advisable because of all of the terrorism and drug aspects. Um, the way this is at the moment discussed, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily playing out like this, is to do, um, first of all, to continue bundling aid rather than everyone doing it themselves the same way, right? Um, the big mechanism at the time until August was the Afghanistan Restructuring Trust Fund, IRTF, ARTF, right? Where all the donors paid in and that, that was through the government of Afghanistan delivered to the Afghan people. That is not going to happen in the same manner. So there is not going to be a delivery through the budget of, of, the, of the Taliban regime to the Afghan people, but what is called off-budget, which, by the way, a significant amount of aid was off-budget in the last 20 years. At every time, um, there was never uh, uh, no off-budget uh, humanitarian aid uh, uh, and, uh, being delivered. So it can be done. It just needs to be refocused, meaning a direct delivery to the Afghan people with minimum involvement of the Taliban regime. You can't completely not involve them because you need licenses. For example, teachers need to be paid, right? But um, minimum involvement and at least, and that would be the point where I would say it would unadvisable to do so, a recognition of the Taliban as somewhat of a legitimate government. Again, governments get elected, regimes force themselves into power. And it's very clear what happened here. This was not a national election in Afghanistan. And on the terrorism and drug side? This is a more tricky issue. Um, there is some arguments which I find quite offensive that all that Afghanistan can do is the drugs, right? Uh, yes, of course, it is also a economic income, but I think it's fine, it's I find it extremely disrespectful to Afghan people to say all you are able to do productively is drugs. They had no choice and they have no choice under the Taliban. Mm -hmm. The Taliban made sure that the drug producing peasants in Afghanistan were in a commercial dependency to them at all times. Uh, just to explain how that works, as I already mentioned earlier, um, poppies do not generate seeds themselves. So you need to get seeds for the next planting season, which means the Taliban gave those poppy seeds to the peasants, they and a cash credit to live until the poppies mature and you can get actually the opium out. And that cash credit was always above the maximum expected yield of the field of that particular individual, which means at the end of the planting and harvesting season, the individual was still in debt to the Taliban, which explained why after ISAF and then uh, the international coalition got extremely efficient in, you know, in the battle space in Afghanistan, the Taliban lost thousands every fighting season. Why there would be again 10, 20,000 fighters on the field in the next fighting season was a large part of them weren't there because they wanted to. They were there because they had to, because they had to fight off the debt to the Taliban during fighting season. And that economic dependency on the Taliban continues today. Until that is broken, a large part of those who grow poppies today in Afghanistan have no other choice than to do so. Because the Taliban are not easily uh, forgiving any debt. If you think they are religious and are kind, I think you're sadly mistaken. When it comes to money, they're very hard, which, by the way, is also the main explanation 
why the relationship between ISIL and Al-Qaeda changed, uh, ISIL and the Taliban changed at one point. Um, initially, the Taliban official statements about the Islamic State operating in Afghanistan was, please don't shoot the brothers. They used to be us. They may come back in the future. Um, we're not happy that they have a separate group, but don't harm them. This changed only and exactly at the same time as ISIS-PK gained control of a couple of uh, uh, valleys in Nangaha province and implemented the usual Islamic State counter-narcotics policy, meaning they bought one harbor of all of the fields in, that, in, that valley, in these valleys, $3 million, our estimate at the time, uh, at the UN, were spent for that. Then they burned the entire harbor. So in difference to the Taliban, didn't store it and sold it later. They actually burned it verifiably and then said, anyone growing drugs, anyone transporting drugs, anyone producing drugs, death sentence, you and your family. That's when the Taliban relationship to ISIS-K changed. All of a sudden, they became mortal enemies. So if you touch the Taliban money, they're not going to react with understanding. Uh Dr. Schindler, we're coming to the end of this interview. There's one question which I still had on my mind. You have, of course, we have discussed different aspects and not everything can be brought into one interview of an hour, one and a half hour. Maybe we need another interview or a few, a few of them to discuss all aspects in detail. There's one thing which during the interview I got a bit of a feeling of is that you have, of course, discussed a few nightmare scenarios. Um, we both agree that the Taliban are much more powerful today than they were last time that they ruled the country. The drug issue has only grown. Taliban is much more stronger, much more economically secure. Uh, and I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, they had a budget uh, that they released. They yeah. had uh, an investor conference, ironically that they conducted in Kabul. Uh, however, they're not doing economically well. They were doing very well as an insurgency movement because being an insurgency is very different from running a country. Yeah, of course. Um, they're not poor. So this extremely dire prediction that everything is going to break down by November, December last year, luckily didn't materialize. There is money coming in, let alone, you know, there is, of course, drug money coming in, but there's also some economic activity still going on in Afghanistan. Okay, so, so you know, but they're not doing well. I mean, they're not no. richer now. If anything, they have more outflowing costs than they had as an insurgency, where their primary concentration was on the perpetration of violence, paying fighters, procuring weapons, right? Not delivering services. So this so now that you government in exile never did anything but judges. Uh, even in the areas in Afghanistan that were under Taliban control in a sustained manner, the Kabul government was perfectly happy and uh, perfectly allowed to build the school, uh, pay the teachers, uh, renovate the hospital. That was all costs that the Taliban never Absolutely. paid a cent for in Afghanistan. Yeah. Now they have no longer an option. Yeah. So, but you know, they, they, the scenario looks much more nightmarish than it did 20 years Tricky. ago. I wouldn't say nightmarish. Nothing can ever be not handled. But yeah, it's not good. So how much, I don't know what would have happened otherwise, but how good has it been for the region or how bad has it been for the region that eventually these 
the Taliban was almost legitimized by the Doha peace talks. Uh, how bad has that been for future counter-terrorism uh, counter initiatives? Uh, because you ended up putting a terrorist organization at the helm of affairs in Afghanistan. Uh, so how bad, what does it predict for the future? So a couple of points here. So first of all, putting the Taliban in power in Afghanistan was not the point of the... Doha no, but it happened. The, the point was to have a power sharing agreement and a peaceful transition via elections, as you would do in democratic systems. So it also, it only legitimized the Taliban in so Doha. far as they would have had to agree to a power sharing agreement, which they very obviously haven't, right? So the result of that um, is, in my view, even a further delegitimization of the Taliban because they now clearly proved that they cannot keep to agreement, that you cannot trust them. Yeah, they promised a the sharing agreement in Doha. But yeah, never, never there is not much sharing going on as far as I can see no, in Afghanistan no. right now. I mean, not even between Taliban factions that are non-Pashtu. There's one Tajik, no Hazara, mm -hmm. right, in the government. So not even within the movement. movement there's no power. It's Pashtun only, yeah. right? So, so in a way, um, the outcome, yes, um, they were on the global stage. Um, that wasn't uh, yeah, maybe a bit too much. But I mean, the outcome of this is not a legitimization of the Taliban. It's a total delegitimization of the Taliban. They actively lied um, to the international community. Which we bought. Yeah, that's our, that's our problem, right? <laughs> that's our problem. But now we have the proof that they did. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, you know, they will find a narrative why this was not working out, blah, 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 right? Fact is, there was an option to do power sharing, a peaceful transition of power. There was even talk of canceling the next Afghan elections in order to do so. And they chose to do this military. So I'm sorry, uh, that really doesn't show much trustworthiness, at least in my books. Okay, so that is where we, where we currently stand. And my last question before we end, and that's maybe a bit more of a political question, but you just said, the Taliban has, of course, been in power as an insurgent group, as a militant, as a terrorist group. It never had to provide services. I've talked to a lot of Afghans who also, uh, at some point of time, were at the helm of affairs in Afghanistan, and they all seem to agree on one thing. And I just want your opinion as a non-Afghan on that. They say uh, the Taliban will not be able to rule Afghanistan for long. How do you see that? Look, I mean, this is a this is a potential scenario um, for two reasons. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, if you look at purely technical appointments in financial institutions in the government, right, um, you find clerics with absolutely no knowledge of what they actually do. They have a religious education, right? That makes it hard for humanitarian professionals to engage with them because the other side just simply doesn't understand what they're talking about. Yeah? Uh, payable through accounts, absolutely unknown, right? So this is not bode well for an effective ruling of the country. 
on top of that, or actually more basic of that, you always, as I said, had these factions within the Taliban movement, some ideological difference within the Taliban movement. You had several governors of Herat yeah, since August this year. This doesn't really look like a stable Taliban movement who is at peace with itself. It very much looks like it did before 2001, where what the people in Kabul did was secondary to what Mullah Omar thought in Kandahar. And what happened in Kandahar really only had tentatively any influence of what happened in Herat, right? And so this will complicate things for international engagement on humanitarian aid, because whatever a minister assures you is only going to be valid as far as this personal network of the minister goes, or the faction of the Taliban that that minister belongs to, mm. right? So try to get something done via the Haqqani network in Tahar. Good luck. Yeah. So do you, um, do, you, do, you, do you, for example, see if the Taliban... Infighting, absolutely possible. Because, I mean, remember, there is now, that is the one difference to 2001. That is more serious maybe in the long run than the challenges of the Northern Alliance was prior to 2001, is that you have an ideological competitor yeah. that is of the same ideological strain, but calls you, and this is very obvious in everything that ISIL-PK puts out uh, uh, since August, calls you the apostate, says you have caused it up to the international community, the Taliban, right? And you are the traitor on, on, on the pure implementation. So could, there, could there even be a possibility that at some point of time, the Taliban might be replaced by a Haqqani network or an ISK? I mean, everything is, is, uh, is like theoretically he, possible. I don't see this very likely at this point. Um, by the way, what, what do you mean by replaced by Haqqani? Haqqani already in iron power. <laughs> um, um, the, the, but what is clear is that you do have defections from the Taliban to ISIS-PK. You seem to have already ISIS-PK sympathizers within the Taliban structure. And this is what I've always saw is a little bit of play on the, the moderating, the moderation of the Taliban. Meaning you cannot be very flexible on simple issues such as girls' education. Ideologically, you cannot. First of all, how can you contradict what you believed 20 years ago? It's God's will in your mind. How can this be different now? But also even more sig significantly, if you get to moderate, yeah. right? ISIS will be simply say, look at those guys. Yeah. You know? Nothing is valuable to them anymore. Join us. So this will accelerate any defections towards ISIS-PK. Um, so they have to limit the amount of moderation that they are able to do, even if they would to, which many of them have absolutely no intention to do so. So women's education is the same kind of issue where they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I mean, the excuse at the moment is that schools are too dangerous for girls to attend. Apparently not uh, dangerous enough for boys, yeah. but definitely for girls. So this is just, you know, covering a ideological base that is not really changeable uh, unless you basically change your ideology with some kind of excuse. And it's for us, i.e. the international community, believe it or not. Dr. Schindler, thank you very, very much for this very insightful uh, talk. And I believe, you know, while I'm always at the end of such a talk, I'm always uh, satisfied with what I've learned and, and, and whatever we have talked about. Uh, this talk has kept me wanting for some more answers. Uh, and I think we just cannot cover all of them in one interview, but I hope we can do that the next time. But 
very insightful. I think many people who would listen to you would get into these nuanced nuances you have sketched. Um, and as you said, uh, counterterrorism efforts um, are going to be more and more challenging with uh, whatever is happening in the region. Thank you so much. It was both a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you for listening to my rants uh, for, for a long time. I really appreciate this. Of course, always happy to come back. Um, and once again, thanks for the, for the invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you so much. Bye-bye.